Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. My guest today is Jason Carl. Jason is a professor of range at the University of Idaho, uh, just across the border in Moscow, Idaho. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. What was your pathway to becoming a rangeland scientist who's known for working with remote sensing and big data? Yeah, that's that's a great question because it was not an intentional pathway. Um, I Most came, of them aren't. Yeah, I came to Idaho in, uh, in 1992 from, uh, from growing up in the Midwest, and I came out here to, to go to school at the uh, University of Idaho, and uh, I was studying wildlife biology, and uh, with all the intention of, of, you know, doing bird research and studying birds, and so uh, all through my undergrad, I, I did, you know, various field jobs with... Uh, with wildlife, um, my master's work at also at University of Idaho was a was a bird research project, and that's kind of where I first started to get into the GIS and remote sensing and the data side of things. But it wasn't really until I started working with the Idaho chapter of the Nature Conservancy in what was that two thousand two that uh, I really kind of made that pivot into into range systems so my my first area that i worked with them was in hell's canyon um, working on some invasive species issues there and yeah from there it was sort of like more south idaho oriented stuff which was more range and then Mm -hmm. just as my career progressed from there it just became more and more range and yeah and here we are right Hmm. So. so how long have you been with u of i maybe you said that uh, well, I've been back with the University of Idaho for actually it's just uh, it'll be two years uh, this August, so just shy of two years now. Yeah. Yep. What angle of remote sensing and applications in rangeland are you focused on right now in terms of research and outreach? Yeah. So there, there's a couple of things um, right now. I'm I, I guess sort of I'm I'm focused kind of on 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 sort of two different ends of a of a spectrum maybe or I don't know. It's like this multi-dimensional spectrum, right? So, so on one hand, I'm I'm really interested in and doing a lot of work now on uh, the use of drones uh, for collecting really high-resolution imagery for for range monitoring, and I like that platform a lot because well, there's a lot that we can do with it. The technology is evolving really rapidly. Uh, it's also becoming a lot more accessible, and mm-hmm. so I know there's some really cool like hundred thousand dollar drones out there and i would love to have one but i'm really (laughs) sort of intrigued by what can we do with the technology that say like uh you know a a blm field office could afford or a Mm -hmm. you know a conservation district could afford right and so that kind of puts it in the realm of the like the thousand dollar drone and the neat thing about it with the advances in the software is like you can actually get good quality data from a sensor like that and a package like that. And so like what are the parameters uh, under which we need to collect the imagery in order to get good data? And then what is it that we can actually get out of those that's useful from a, from a management perspective? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of like one end of it. And then the other end of it is like the totally opposite end of like like – 
satellite, you know, sort of moderate to coarse resolution satellite imagery, but really dense time series stuff. Mm -hmm. So rather than looking at like a satellite image or a couple of satellite images, then what can we get by looking at, you know, every Landsat scene from 1984 till now, or mm -hmm. every MODIS scene from, you know, 2001 until now. For a given location. Yeah, for a given location, and then sort of pull that apart and 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 tease out that that variability and how the variability mm -hmm. changes, um, and then what the signal looks like under under different you know sort of events that we know have happened, right? And try to mm -hmm. try to pull apart and tell the story of the land through that that time series record. So those are the two sort of like like things that I think I'm most interested in or most sort of, I think there's the, the greatest potential to, to inform management from those, mm -hmm. from those two angles. Yeah. The, the, the drone data gives you more specific information to a project. The other data provides some generic uh, publicly accessible data available for gigantic landscapes potentially that could be analyzed. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, you have to ask the question, right. Of like, cause it's this sort of resol it's like a spatial resolution versus like a, a mm -hmm. time frequency. Right. And, and, and which right. one is it that's really more important for the question that you're trying to ask. Right. Yeah. And both may be useful. Oh, of course. Uh, yeah. You know, there's, I have mixed feelings about big data. And of course the term gets used for all kinds of stuff. You know, what we're talking about is maybe something different than, uh, the big data that would get used to analyze, you know, say a presidential election or something, but uh, yeah. there, it was a, you know, a big brave new world out there of, of big data. And it seems like the sky is the limit for the uses of data that we can get from remote, sen remote sensing applications, uh, you know, whether drone data or satellite data. Uh, as the costs have come down on satellite data and the number of applications that provide uh, kind of a simple user interface for people who are not GIS specialists to do something with it. Um, it. It seems like there are people who are, I would call average rangeland users like myself, who are beginning to be able to do something with it. it is, do you see that happening or is that still not quite there yet? Um, I think it's coming along, but I think we've got a long way to go. And it's it's sort of like an implementation gap, right? That, that, you know, we've had remote sensing technologies now for, you know, like, like 30, 40 years. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's been promising all sorts of things over that time frame. And, and I guess I feel like in, 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 from what I see, it's just now starting to sort of realize that. And I think some of the tools that are making these data more accessible are certainly helping with that. Um, I guess I feel at, at some level re relative to how the, the remote sensing data are actually like used or useful for management, mm -hmm. we're still trying to figure out what that actually looks like. And, and, um, and I think we've, we've been hamstrung a little bit in the past by expecting the remote sensing technologies to replicate the things that we would do on the ground. Mm -hmm. And I, and I guess I, what I've seen over the last, say, like five or you know maybe 10 years, right, is that the research has moved in the direction more of, okay, well, what, what can remote sensing tell us that, that we 
that, that we can't measure on the ground, right? Mm -hmm. And so this, this idea of um, larger scale indicators or um, longer time frame indicators, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, so, so things maybe that, that the, the remote sensing technology could, could do that's maybe better than we can do in the field. And sort of an example of that would be like drone imagery uh, gives us maybe an opportunity to do like like height and structure data mm -hmm. better than we might be able to do in the field. Or we, we actually published a couple of papers when I was with the Hornada on looking at, at soil erosion with um, drone imagery. And, and, and that's a case where the, the drone is actually a platform that allows us to measure something a lot easier than we can do in the field. So, so mm -hmm. measuring erosion, actual soil surface change, or soil movement as a field method is really hard, right? You're either doing like, like, you know, silt fences or, you know, something where you're trying to trap sediment, but then you have a hard time quantifying like where that sediment actually came from, mm -hmm. or you're doing, um, you know, like erosion bridges or erosion pins, right? Which, but, but that's just a very like point-based estimate of mm -hmm. a process that's happening over a larger area. And with the drone, we can um, we can look at the change in the soil surface over time with repeated drone flights, and then do that over a much much larger area. Right. And so, so it, it opens up sort of new new possibilities. Um, yeah, I feel like those two things that you mentioned are major barriers to implementation, even for ground based monitoring, uh, namely the amount of variation across the landscape, you know, the heterogeneity combined with the size, mm -hmm. the spatial scale of rangelands means that if I'm measuring something right here, right now, that may not apply, that what I'm measuring may not be uh, representative of even the soil type that's next to me. Yeah. And much less something that I can extrapolate across, you know, say a 15,000 acre ownership. And it, it seems like um, you know, we, we've we've said for years you can't measure everything, and so we have to pick and choose indicators that are you know reliable, that are less sensitive to interannual variation in precipitation, that are less sensitive to management and the timing of management inputs. Uh, but but maybe the idea that we can't measure everything isn't quite true anymore. You know, to me, the idea of being able to to actually measure, say. Um, cover, whatever kind of cover type we want to use across that 15,000 acre hypothetical ownership, uh, it seems pretty cool and complementary with ground-based monitoring. You know, so the solution in the past has been to multiply replication, to, to replicate sure. yeah. so that you can say with, you know, some defined level of statistical uh, significance that what you're measuring is representative or is not. Uh, but if you can measure, if you can analyze the whole thing, it seems like that would be pretty useful. Yeah, except I think there's an important distinction to make, and that's between like we we still can't measure everything, but now we're in a position where we can estimate everything, yeah. right? And and, yeah. and and that's a that that's sort of a critical difference, right? And and so the the sensors themselves in a, in a remote sensing context. The, the the sensors themselves are just measuring like the amount of light that's reflected off of, right. of a surface in various wavelengths. And then right. we have to 
to sort of like put some sort of interpretation to that in terms of like what it what it mm-hmm. means. And so to it, come up with a metric, to come up with, with, with something, yeah, that that's of interest to us or something that means something right. to us from a, from a management perspective. And so, yeah, they, they, they aren't measurements, right? They're right. they're And so the measurements are actually still have to happen on the ground and, and by and large still happen at these sort of site scales or point scales. But then the, 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 imagery products or remote sensing products give us an opportunity to then scale those up, right? And, and, mm-hmm. and apply those across a, a larger landscape. But the other sort of, I, I think, important uh, thing to keep in mind is that, you know, when, when we would take a, a sample of points in the field and go out and measure something, and then we can say, like, calculate some sort of statistic for that, and then we can put a uh, like a confidence interval around that statistic, okay? And, and like we, we, we know sort of intuitively what that means, right? That the actual value is probably somewhere within that mm-hmm. range that we, that we calculated, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when, we, when we do a remote sensing model of say like cover, right? Across a large landscape, then the, the, the meaning of that uncertainty is different, right? And so, so now we have an observation for everywhere. We have a, a, a pixel value, right, mm-hmm. with, uh, that we get from the sensor for every spot on the ground. And so the, the uncertainty isn't sort of like, well, the true value is probably somewhere within this range. The uncertainty actually describes like how well those, those reflected light values from that sensor actually Correlates. correlate to the, the field data that we collected, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's a little bit of like like mental gymnastics sometimes to sort of figure out like, okay, what does that actually mean relative to my assessment of conditions within, say, like the 15,000 acre ownership that you talked about? Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I think it's, you know, that I think that's the the, the challenge at this point is then sort of placing these different pieces that we have now, the field observations, the remote sensing observations, right, into a, a context or a, uh, um, uh, a framework, but I don't really like that term. I think it's really overused, right, of, mm-hmm. of how, how we use those things together to sort of leverage the strengths of each one and then account for those known sort of limitations or weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so the field data gives us that, that sort of locked in perspective. You know, we visited that spot on the ground. We know what's going on there. Right. But, but there doesn't necessarily relate well to what's the next pasture over, right. Or the next hill over. And, and that's the strength of the remote sensing is it gives us that, that sort of wall to wall coverage, that synoptic view um, that allows us to maybe, maybe put the story to the data a little bit more, right? Puts those field observations in that larger context. Prior to us interpreting the kind of imagery that's out there, what what kinds of information are out there that are generically available uh, from satellite data? You know, for example, I'm thinking of uh, the cover data that is used in the rangelands analysis platform uh, what is that based on? I realize it's not some kind of direct, <laughs> you know, eye in the sky measurement of cover, yeah. like you said. What, what is the, what's the 
Yeah. What's the nature of the actual data that's being pulled in and how does that get transformed to get to um, something like a, a cover value and what other kinds of raw data are out there that are available? Yeah. So, so the, so what's in the sort of um, the wrap as you called it um, is uh, at, at its sort of core, it's, it's some field observations that have been collected by the, the BLM and the NRCS over, over many, many years. And then those, those values, those cover values from those field data then are correlated to uh, the satellite imagery values. And then they create this statistical model that then gets applied uh, across sort of space and, and time, right? And so, so that's kind of like one style of, of product that's out, remote sensing product that's out there, right? The, these empirical models. And so there's the wrap, there's... Um, you know, the, the USGS grass shrub products, right? There's, there's a number of these, uh, of these data sets that are out there and available now. Um, and then there are some other um, uh, types of, of remote sensing products that are, that are sort of generally available and, and used. And so um, one would maybe, we could maybe call it more of a biophysical model um, where, it's based off of like the known relationships between um, the the light, the spectral sort of properties of the imagery and like photosynthetic activity. Mm-hmm. And so there are a number of vegetation indices like an NDVI, normalized difference vegetation index, um, that we know. And that's just a ratio of the, the near infrared light, right, which plants reflect almost all of the near infrared light mm-hmm. that, that is incoming, right? And then the red light, which is they absorb most of the red light, right, for photosynthesis. And so the ratio of those two wavelengths tells you a lot about photosynthetic activity in a, in a plant, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's been a lot of research over the years done to, to sort of characterize like what NDVI or these vegetation index values mean, right? And there's a whole host of them out there. And some of them, like this one that was developed at University of Arizona, this soil-adjusted total vegetation index, that one actually then can be, you know, through a little bit of like, like mathematical jujitsu, right? You can actually convert that into estimates of like total foliar cover, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but but those are based off of like like first principles sort of understanding of how light reflects off of, you know, photosynthetically active vegetation, right? Versus soil versus dead vegetation. Yeah. Yeah. And so those are, those are, those are different than like what the cover products that, you know, the wrap has, right. Which are, Mm -hmm. which are statistical models. These are more of like a, like a physical model. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, I think those would probably be the two kind of main products that are out there, but, but, you know, there's a whole host of, of things that are, that are available now. I think the trick becomes in, um, yeah, in sort of like packaging and presenting those and then interpreting what they mean and then interpreting them relative to like, okay, well, we know that, you know, NDVI sometimes is is challenging to use in like low cover situations because it's not really sensitive to, to changes in say like, well, like in the Chihuahuan Desert, right, where you have like very low cover of photosynthetically active vegetation, mm-hmm. you could double your amount of cover of photosynthetically active vegetation and NDVI might not well, pick that up because yeah. it's not really sensitive at that low end range, right? right? So. Yeah, interesting. So at the 
for example, if if um, if uh, a lack of a better term, a mapping application like the RAP says that you have this percentage of perennial cover versus X percentage of annual cover, they're getting perennial cover from uh, some <clears throat> some from imagery that's showing greenness for longer in the year. Is that right? So like a perennial grass is going to be green from March 15th to maybe July 15th or the 1st of August, whereas an annual grassland, you know, or places that have a lot of annual grasses are going to have a very sh a narrow window where they're green and then they immediately turn color. Is that how that would yeah, I, I don't. I'm. I'm not sure the actual specifics of how they they sort of modeled those. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I know it was a it was a sort of a time series approach, mm -hmm. but I think that'd be a great you know conversation to have with either Brady, you know, Allred or Matt yeah. Jones um, about the specifics of that. That's certainly one one approach to to doing that. You know, is is to do this sort of multi scene either selection or just considering this whole time series of, of right. images that then keys into those different phenological stages um, and the differences between the phenological stages. Right. We did something I, with a with a postdoc that I had at the Hornada, John Maynard, um, uh, took the approach of uh, using the time series information to, to discriminate or classify map basically the different ecological sites on the Hornada. And so it was all based just off of NDVI values over time. But like the, the clay sites had a much different, uh, sort of like temporal signature time mm. series signature than the, the Sandy sites did. Right. Mm -hmm. And so just using like changes in plant green up over time and, you know, the seasonality of these different sites, we were able to actually pull these apart and map those really pretty, pretty well at the Hornada. Mm -hmm. So it's that same, same kind of idea, right? That, 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 that rather than just looking at point in time, how does the light reflect off of different types of vegetation, right? We can, we can look at, okay, well, how do these things change over time? Right. And then what do those changes actually tell us? Mm -hmm. With, uh, with some of the major satellite suites that are that have available data like Landsat or Modus, what's the 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 time frequency of their flyover through a given location? Assuming there's no cloud cover. Yeah. And so uh, so Landsat is uh, is every 16 days, and it's a you know it's it's a one shot deal, right? It passes over every 16 days, and if it's if it's cloudy, you're out of luck, right? You know if it. Right. Um, whereas Modus um, the the MODIS satellite, it's actually, um, it's going over, what is it, every day, right? Mm. Um, and and shooting, and it covers huge swaths of the continent at one time, right? Uh, now, it's a much coarser resolution. Right. But but what they do with MODIS then is that they, they sort of like collect those daily passes and then they pick the best pixel out of that you know, so that's seven or eight, what is it, seven or eight days. Mm -hmm. And then that's the, the pixel that actually makes it into their like, like product, right? The final. Yeah. Thing. And so they do these eight it's day um, mm -hmm. composites, right? And, and mm -hmm. which, which gives you that, that sort of insulation against like cloud cover and stuff like that. So, so you get more, you get a more consistent sort of time series out of the modus 
than you do out of Landsat, right? Because it's mm-hmm. it, it, it's got a lot more data to pick from, and then it picks the best pixels mm-hmm. for each one. And so for the time series stuff, Modus is really nice uh, for that. Mm-hmm. Um, Just you know, coarser spatial resolution. Yeah, it's coarser spatial resolution, right? But but another paper that, that my postdoc at the Hornada, John Maynard, and I did, um, well, this is... This is the royal we, right? This is mostly John and his idea, but it was to look at at the um, uh, the effect of that that spatial resolution, right? And so to basically ask the question, what's more important to have the finer spatial resolution of the of the Landsat or to have the coarser resolution of the modus, but have it more frequently? And and we we basically found at the at, at the Hornada in this sort of Chihuahuan Desert area, you, the, the 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 variability there you had to like site scale variability, fine scale like patch structure, right? You know, mesquite dune land mm-hmm. kind of things, right? And but once you got above that, it was basically those same patterns just repeated across the landscape. And and those patterns were f- fine enough that even Landsat pixels weren't picking them, picking them up. And so at that point, hmm. it's like, well, you're getting way more information by having the more frequent modus data than you were out of having the higher resolution Landsat data, right? right. So, so it, was kind of, it was a really cool sort of approach that, that John took to sort of like figuring out how to like evaluate those trade-offs, right? Those space and time trade-offs that you have to deal with with, with satellite imagery. Right. I just wanted to mention for listeners who feel like this is a little bit esoteric, <laughs> we'll eventually dial back into WIFM, what's in it for me, and I think bring this back down to earth. Um, yeah, I can geek out on this stuff all day, right? So. <laughs> Moving on to monitoring for, for management, there's a, a a trend nationally, I would say, toward creating monitoring systems that have comparable metrics, even if they don't have uh, similar measurement methods. And in the 2017 uh Range textbook chapter on monitoring protocols that you wrote with Jeff Herrick, uh, who we've listened to already, and David Pike. Uh, you say that robust and interoperable monitoring programs provide a much more useful starting point for addressing known unknowns and unknown unknowns. Uh, what did you mean by a robust and interoperable? Yeah, so so robust to me means that there are like structures or systems in place to support the, the, the collection, the, the sort of like care and feeding, you know, of your data and then the, the use of that data on, mm-hmm. on the backside. And so, so what I mean by that, right, is like that there are um, well-described protocols that have been sort of like, like vetted and, and validated. Uh, there's, there's training resources in place for that. There's, defined procedures for how you do your data, you know, QA, QC, right? Um, mm-hmm. And and then there's there's um, sort of documented ways in which you can analyze those data and then like, like steps for how they actually feed into the decision-making process. Mm-hmm. So to me, all of that would sort of wrap together into a, into a robust monitoring protocol. And we actually were, were, that that was sort of on display last week. We did the annual sort of upland monitoring for the University of Idaho's Rock Creek Ranch um, down in southern Idaho, and and we're using the same monitoring protocols, the same monitoring system there that the BLM and the the NRCS uh, National uh, National Resources Inventory uses, right? 
And, uh, um, you know, and the, and the reason we're doing that rather than doing anything on our own is that, yeah, those, those protocols that, that were sort of developed and implemented as part of that, that program, um, are the, are the product of like 15 or 20 years of, of sort of like refinement. Mm -hmm. And so we can take advantage of all of that and, and, you know, sort of implement something and not have to worry about trying to, to develop our own protocols and, and then, uh, you know, kind of deal with all the headaches of like, well, what do we do in this case? You know, oh, we didn't think about this. Now mm -hmm. we have to make a rule on the fly, you know, kind of thing. So if you're, if you're doing research and applying management treatments on the Rock Creek Ranch and then getting a certain set of results, the description of the results would be, could be an apples to apples comparison to data that the BLM might be collecting on their own land. Yeah. And, and that's the interoperability part, right? right. In, in that, um, you know, these data sets are, are compatible across ownerships, right? right? And so, you know, if I have data on Rock Creek and you have data on either a ranch next door or some other BLM allotments, then they all sort of feed together mm -hmm. and, and give us this kind of critical mass at landscape scales that was really, really hard. Historically, it's been really, really hard for us to actually achieve. Mm -hmm. And and I think we've seen that that play out in in – well, in countless cases, right? I mean, the the you know the whole uh, issue around sage grouse, sage grouse habitat, and sage grouse populations, you know that 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 sort of discussion and how that played out. I this is just in my humble opinion, right? Mm -hmm. Probably could have been well informed by having some consistent data sets that you know across right. ownerships, which right. we actually like have now. We you know we we can actually start to say things it's like speaking the same language. Yeah, yeah, man. It all, all that that sort of interoperability part, you know, not not to be you know sort of like like trivial about it, but the interoperability part all all comes down to the fact that you and I have to agree on what a rock is. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and if we don't, then we've got a square one issue and, you know, you right. can't use my data. Right. But if we can sort of hash out some of those, some of those sort of fundamental definitions and, and fundamental concepts around monitoring, then my data become useful to you. Mm -hmm. yeah. Which I think also motivates more people to collect some data. Because if the yeah. only motivation is so that I can use my data internally comparing against my own data historically, that's maybe not as strong a motivation as if what I'm doing can be compared with uh, the guy next door, the BLM, NRCS, Rock Creek Ranch. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you're right. Although I think that there there is still a challenge that you know, even though we talk about the importance of having um, you know, like like looking across boundaries and and sort of taking a landscape view of it, a, a lot of management. And, and this is not just within agencies, it's within sort of, you know, private entities as well. A lot of management happens at that project scale. And mm -hmm. so there are just these intense forces that, that, that make us focus on that project scale. And so it's it, in, in sort of implementing these, these consistent, you know, maybe standardized approaches to monitoring, it's, it's, it's been, um, you know, a bit of a, of, of a struggle to get people to sort of think a little bit broader and I think that that in in getting this uh, getting this setup implemented, right, getting this concept implemented, there's almost like this altruistic phase that we have to go through, right, where we need enough people to sort of like buy into the idea and mm -hmm. do it for a while um, to to sort of build that that critical mass of data that then mm -hmm. starts becoming 
you know, useful to people at, at a number of different levels. Right. And I think to their, to their credit, you know, the, the BLM has really stepped up to the plate uh, on this and, and invested in their, in their aim monitoring program, which, you know, in the, in the, in the course of what was it, 2019 now, right? So in the course of like eight years, they've gone from basically having no aim data to now having aim data on what, you know, over 20,000 locations, right? Mm -hmm. And so that then becomes this, this base where you have a new question now, right? And this gets to that, to the unknown unknowns, right? You mm -hmm. know, and, and uh, uh, so now a new question comes up, well, hey, I've already got a set of data that, that, you know, maybe can start to, to uh, inform that, not to suggest that, that, that those data are going to be sufficient to answer any new question or even any existing question, but at least they're a starting point mm -hmm. for it. Yeah, that issue about using common metrics and the BLM stepping up to the plate makes me wonder, one, is the Forest Service at that same plate? And, and two, uh, are, the, are the AIM data or the AIM metrics ones that would be useful on the forest? My own experience with monitoring uh, has been that, you know, in places where you've got more precipitation, like a forest, even a dry forest, different indicators are useful than if you're in, you know, shrub step in eastern Washington under eight inches of annual precip. You know, I guess one example is canopy cover. Uh, you know, at lower at lower precipitations, canopy cover may be telling. It could tell a number of different things, but at least it's something that is sensitive and measurable. If you're in a a, a higher rainfall site. A canopy cover may be 100% all the time, regardless of the condition of, of rangeland. So uh, question number one is, is the, is the, are the same metrics that BLM is using useful to the Forest Service? And two, is the Forest Service uh, using them or planning to? Um, so, so to the first question, I, I would argue, yes, they are, but, but maybe not necessarily in the same way, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and when we work through the process with the BLM to define these, these you know, we, we call them core indicators, right? Um, and, and those are largely consistent with what the, the NRCS and the National Resources Inventory are using, right? Um, that these, the, the core indicators were selected because they were applicable in a number of different uh, environments, situations. Mm -hmm. And we've implemented them, you know, all the way from the you know, from the Mojave, Sonoran, Chihuahuan deserts in, in the southwestern U.S. all the way up to the north slope of Alaska, right, on these, on these coastal tundra, you know, systems, right? So, so we're, we're, we're pretty confident that they, that they are applicable. Now, to your specific example about, you know, maybe like total canopy cover is not as informative in a, in a more mesic forest as it is in sort of like a dry range site, right? Um, but, but you could argue that well, composition probably is right, and yeah. and so and and you know that's sort of composition is 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 a sort of a another factor, another piece of those core indicators, right? Mm -hmm. So you know up on the on the uh, you know these coastal tundra systems in Alaska, right? Canopy gap is is not useful in the same context that it is down in the southwestern U.S., right? right? Okay, but um, but you know there, yeah. So um, 
as to sort of where the Forest Service is in in terms of this, you know, that I'm I'm not actually really sure on that at this moment since it's been a couple of years since I've engaged there. I know there were a number of people really, you know, sort of sort of trying to um, coordinate efforts between mm-hmm. the the various agencies, and 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 this is an area where. I think like sage grouse is actually proving to be kind of useful um, in that it's it's forcing these kinds of conversations to happen about mm-hmm. you know how we actually standardize things and how we then you know get data sets that can that can inform across these boundaries. Right, which is something we should be doing anyway, but sometimes it takes a healthy crisis to make it happen. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I mean, each of each of the agencies, and it's not. I don't want to just pick on agencies, right? Because in any right. organization is is um, you know prone to this, right? Is that there's this this sort of culture and and sort of legacy of the organization that that sort of factors into like mm-hmm. what I'm doing today. You know, it's a product of what this mm-hmm. agency or organization has done in the past, right? And so, which is also useful because if you're yeah to the extent that they are doing any monitoring there's quite a bit of incentive to continue doing what they had been doing, even if it's not the best thing out there, because at least it's comparable if they're using collecting the same data in the same way. Yeah. To, to a point though, but, but, you know, I, my, my, my analogy that I like to point out, right. Is that, you know, we, we don't still measure temperature with mercury bulb thermometers, right. Mm-hmm. You know, at, at some point, you know, we, we, the, the, you know, sort of meteorological community, right. Made a change, made a shift from mercury bulb thermometers to digital thermometers, right. Which, you know, everything's based off of now. Mm-hmm. Now, digital thermometers actually behave slightly differently than mercury bulb thermometers do. Right. And so, um, but, but that, 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 um, those properties, right. That difference was sort of really well studied and you know there was a there was a plan put in place and from how to transition from one to the other mm-hmm. and to to the point that like it's totally transparent to us as just consumers of of sort of weather information right mm-hmm. and i think that's a that's an interesting model to think about you know like yeah as we as we look at sort of legacy monitoring efforts and then how we sort of bring them up to speed with um or in, into you know into to you know correspondence with with new approaches to monitoring mm-hmm. um it's like okay you know we, we need to sort of study these and understand sort of how they relate to each other so that we can actually make a useful transition i don't think that you know we should just willy-nilly quit with you know sort of established monitoring programs and then just like like abandon them because we have some sort of new right. newfangled you know like technique right. right um and temperature is still useful we just need to update how we collect yeah it. and and that that was one of the big reasons like like in that book chapter that you referred to and 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 when we set up the the monitoring protocols like for the BLM you know we we made a almost a like a painful distinction between like an indicator and a method right mm-hmm. And and to me, the indicators, like like what it is you're actually going to measure, that's the part that, that needs to be consistent over time. And then the methods should actually be, well, one, picked so that they're consistent with the definition of what the indicator is. But the methods should evolve as our as the science evolves, right? And 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 as our ability to measure things evolve. And so really, like like when it comes down to it, in like 
you know, line point intercept is our, like our go-to method for measuring cover now, mm -hmm. right? Um, because it gives us like an, a huge amount of data for, you know, a modest sort of right. amount of effort, right? right? But in 15 or 20 years, if we're still using line point intercept to collect cover data, I might be kind of disappointed, right? It's like, like I would expect there to be actually something maybe better, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe we're using drones to do it or I, I don't know, mm -hmm. you know, I'm just making all this up now, right? But, you know, but, but yeah, so, so the, right. the, we expect the methodology to mature somewhat over time. Yeah. And then, so the, so the indicator though, is what needs to be consistent in order right. to carry things forward. In that chapter, you mentioned a number of criteria uh, for selecting core indicators to, or to evaluate what makes them useful or relevant. And for people who may be considering adopting some kind of a monitoring program where they haven't before, particularly people that are, are not attached to an agency where that's going to be prescribed for them. I think it's useful to take a look at some of those criteria. Again, these are for indicators, not for measurement methods. Uh, and you can talk about each one as much or as little as you want to. Uh, the first one you mentioned in the chapter is uh, relevance to ecosystem structure or function. That's one that's probably not quite as apparent to the listener at face value as to what it means. Uh, what exactly do you mean by relevance to ecosystem structure or function? Yeah, well, I think that most people expect this yeah, you know, it's like implied, right? If we're gonna if we're gonna choose something to measure, it it should actually like mean something, mean something to the system, right? right. And and so, um, you know, if 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 you're interested in you know sort of like like change from from say like healthy sagebrush systems to like annual grass invaded ecosystems, right? Then then you should be measuring the things that relate to that process of invasion by annual grasses. Right. That's that's what that 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 sort of means. We could right? measure leaf width, but it would have no relevance to Yeah, pro probably not, right? Yeah. Right. But measuring like, you know, the amount of bare ground or mm -hmm. or measuring um, you know, sort of establishment of annual grass seedlings or, mm -hmm. you know, sort of, yeah, like, like basal cover of perennial grasses, right? You know, mm -hmm. all of those things could be sort of functional indicators, right? Because they're related right. to that process of, of annual grass invasion. Right. Uh, the second one you mentioned is usability. Uh, does that mean whether or not it's a measurement or uh, an indicator that somebody could actually measure? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of things, right. That we can dream up that we would like to measure that right. are like super hard to do. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, pick, picking indicators that, that people can actually do and that give data that actually like mean, like means something. Right. Although right. the, I mean, some of these criteria, uh, overlap, overlap right. Sure. You know, cause there's one in there that talks about, I think interpretability, right. Like, like right. what does this actually mean? Right. And there are lots of things too, and we saw this uh, a lot, like in the in the '90s and sort of early 2000s, when this kind of landscape ecology concept really, you know, exploded. And there's a lot of effort going on into defining landscape indicators, patch indicators, things like that. And there are all sorts of funky things sort of thrown out, mm -hmm. like fractal dimensions. And you know, there was there are all these papers that show that oh, well, the fractal dimension of these systems is really you know strongly correlated with these different properties, right? It's right. like, okay, well, explain fractal dimension to your grandma, you know? Right. It's like, like, so I don't know. And then this is maybe just my personal bias, but I think we should be picking sort of the simplest and most straightforward indicators that we mm -hmm. can actually like describe and put a meaning to, right? Mm -hmm. uh, your third criterion was cost effectiveness. That's fairly straightforward. What would be an example of, uh, you know, say an expensive 
indicator versus a, a cheap indicator? Oh, well, um, I mean, expense comes in, in different forms, right? So mm -hmm. it can either be expensive to collect a, an indicator like at a site. Right. Um, and, and I'm, I'm trying to think of a like on the fly example of that. And, and, but I mean, it could be something that actually like requires some sort of sensor or instrument to, to measure. Mm -hmm. Right. And then there's expense in that the value, like the, 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 the right. data that you actually get Cost for each observation is really pretty small. And so you have to have lots right. and lots and lots of observations. Right? right. And so the example of that could actually be like soil erosion, um, where, you know, I'm going to measure like erosion pins or an erosion bridge over like a meter area, right. Versus mm -hmm. <clears throat> flying that with a drone a couple of, you know, different times with good mm -hmm. ground control. And then I can measure soil surface change over, you know, 50, 60 acres. Right. 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 Uh, the fourth criterion was cause and effect. Yeah. Um, and that gets back to the sort of functional indicator thing, right? So you would want to pick an indicator that, that a it's causal. Yeah. That change in that indicator value is actually directly related to the thing that you're interested in. Yeah. And so, you know, it could be a change in like, like how connected your bare ground patches are which like canopy gap intercept would be an, a method to sort of measure that. Changing that connectedness is actually like directly related to wind erosion, right? Or water erosion. So that's a cause and effect. Mm -hmm. Something that has a, a strong sort of cause and effect linkage mm -hmm. there. Uh, how about signal to noise ratio? Yeah, that's a good one too. And that comes actually in two different flavors as well, right? Um, and and before you you mentioned that these are sort of mostly defined relative to indicators, but most a lot of them can be applied to the methods as well. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about like signal to noise ratio, right? Noise is just sort of like like undesired variability in our data, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and that can come either because the the systems we're trying to measure are just sort of naturally you know heterogeneous, right? There's just variability in the systems. Um, or it can come, it can be introduced through the methods that we use as well, right? And so, you know, dealing with with uh, noisy systems, like just variable systems, right? Then there's, you know, different approaches to sample design or there's, you know, sort of mm -hmm. different indicators that we can pick. So like, um, uh, you know, uh, um, variability relative to interannual precipitation, right? Some years are really wet, some years are really dry. Mm -hmm. And if you're trying to measure like, like cover of annual grasses, right? It's just going to be enormously variable between years, right? Mm -hmm. But some, some other sort of metric, like a density measure, um, well, for annuals, that's not a good example, right? But, right. but for sort of like perennials, right? Uh, a, a density measure might actually be more stable over time. So mm -hmm. have a higher signal to noise ratio. Mm-hmm provided that it was actually still meaningful, right, as a functional indicator. Right. But then in, in terms of methods, um, you know, like like a, a method that has more like uh, observer variability, right, or or is more subjective, it's going to just be noisier. And so mm -hmm. that, that should sort of drive us to the methods that are the most consistent and the easiest to apply. Mm -hmm. Both across sites and across observers? Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, quality assurance. Yeah, to me, this is just sort of a um, almost like a checkbox kind of thing, right? You know, like like are there 
uh, rules in place and, and things that you can do to assure that you're getting high quality data, right? And, mm -hmm. and again, that gets back to this idea of, of like quantitative measurements and observations versus qualitative you know, just sort of like eyeball assessments and descriptions, right? Right. Um, it's easy for us to, to easier for us to train and, and then like, like verify that, that you and I are taking the same measurement or you and I are actually observing the same phenomenon than it is to coordinate our interpretation of that site or our sort of ocular estimate of that, of that area, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, in the list, I don't see anything on observer bias. Would observer bias fit under that category? You know, where if, if I measure this particular indicator using this method and then you do it and we come up with wildly different results, seems like that would be a less useful. Is the, does that fit underneath quality assurance or is that more of the signal to noise problem? Well, I think it could fit under both, but, you know, you could also make an argument that it, it, it could stand on its own as a criterion, right? Yeah. That, that there, Yeah, there are... There are, and we're seeing this actually with a with a project that um, I have a graduate student right now, Alex Trainer, evaluating um, utilization data on a. <clears throat> we have a, a project in in southern Idaho that's collecting a lot of utilization data at the same sites using different techniques, and Alex mm -hmm. is looking at okay, what are the effects of like like the different observer effects, and is there an effect of um, like people who have well, from like, you know, people who actually have a range background versus people who mm -hmm. have like a wildlife background and they're trying to implement these, or is there a, an effect as you move from say like a more productive system to a less productive system? And, and for some methods, especially the ocular estimation methods, like landscape appearance, there, there mm -hmm. seems to be a really strong effect there. So people who move from a, from a productive sort of, uh, uh, you know, ecosystem to a less productive one tends to rate that less productive ecosystem as having higher utilization mm -hmm. when it may be the same or actually maybe lower utilization mm -hmm. just by virtue of the fact that it's, it's a less productive system, right? right. And so, yeah, though, that, that sort of inherent, the, those inherent biases, right, I, I think are not really well described a lot of times with the different methods that we use, mm -hmm. but, but probably actually influence our data a lot, right? right. Uh, the next criterion is is that an indicator should be anticipatory or have anticipatory value. Does that mean that it's a leading indicator that represents yeah. uh, you know, a, something that would happen toward the front end of degradation, for example? Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, that's that's pretty much exactly it's just like a like an academic way of saying, right, that it's a leading right. indicator. Yeah. And so uh, an example of that could be, um, you know, if you're looking at, at uh, sort of, you know, degradation in like a, like a perennial grass system, right, then the cover of those perennial grasses could be a leading indicator because you would, you would expect cover to decrease before you actually lost individuals of that, mm -hmm. of that grass. Right. But, right. but then on, on the flip side of that, if you're looking at like, like restoration or recovery covers probably not a good anticipatory indicator of that, right? Because you, you need establishment of individuals and then the cover will come later, right? right? And, and so in, in, a, in a recovery context, then maybe, you know, a density measure might actually be more useful. Mm -hmm. yeah. Just thinking on the flip side, if, uh, uh, 
for example, I, don't know, I have some interest in uh, in whether insect diversity could be used as a you know rangeland health indicator, but it seems like that or or other uh, you know sort of higher order species are more of a lagging indicator rather than a leading indicator. The canary in the coal mine would be less useful than you know something that measures the introduction of uh, gases prior to something dying from the gases. Yeah, right, right. right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a yeah. That that's sort of a good point. I don't know. Yeah, it'd be an interesting one to to sort of think through, right? And mm-hmm. and and this gets back to sort of that idea of of having these these uh, conceptual models, right? For for how a system works, mm-hmm. um, which you know gets a lot of gets a lot of play. And I actually I think people sort of like like dismiss that a lot of times as a step in the, in the process, like, oh yeah, well, we already know how these systems work. Right. And it's like, well, we may know how they work. We may only think we know how they work, but, yeah. but that's sort of like, like the, the, the foundation upon which we select these functional indicators. And, and, and that is what then could suggest things like, well, you know, insect diversity may actually be a good indicator for, something right for, for this mm-hmm. thing that we're interested in mm-hmm. because it's 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 causally or conceptually tied to these other factors these other processes that are happening right. on the ground right yeah so i'll give an indicator have would have different anticipatory value depending on what you're wanting to find out yeah yeah yep uh, what would it mean for an indicator to have to be retrospective um, well, that Does that's that just mean historical data exists. Um, that's part of it, right? You know, it, 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 part of it too means that 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 indicator is sort of capturing, like, the indicator itself is sort of capturing the history of what's happening at that site, mm. right? And think about like um, like pedestaling in a in a range uh, site, right? You know, the the fact that you have pedestaling means that there was some erosion process that happened in that site over time. Right. Or if you have like, like plant bases that are buried under sand or sediment, right. Mm -hmm. Then, then, then that is a a retrospective indicator because it's, it's, it's capturing the fact that there was some process that happened some, some, yeah, time before. Right. Right. Yeah. And, you know, not, not, not every indicator is going to be able to sort of achieve every one of these, you know, kind, oh, sure. of, kind of things, right? But, right, but the more uh, the more criteria work for a given indicator, the, the higher value it has. Yeah, yeah. One of one of the benefits that I can see in in standardizing approaches to monitoring is is trying to value ecosystem goods and services. Uh, you know, from an economic perspective, if you talk to ten economists, you'd get twenty-seven different opinions <laughs> yeah. on how to value these things, yeah. Yeah. both intangible and tangible ecosystem goods or services. Uh, but to value something, you have to measure it. I mention this because we're going to go into a, a series of uh, podcast episodes talking to people about, uh, you know, one, how do we, how do we ensure that we're creating, you know, ecosystem goods and services. Uh, which I think is one of the things that makes rangeland-based livestock production stand out from, say, corn production. Yeah, you know, you don't grow corn in places that are—it's—it's it's no longer wildlife habitat, really. Uh, but we we expect clean water, wildlife habitat, open space. These are all things that we 
expect from uh, rangeland ecosystems. Uh, but to value something or to put a value on something, you have to measure something. Uh, and I think I think that that some of these some of these satellite data that we can get to at larger scales maybe can help to put value on on these less tangible ecosystem goods and services uh, do you think do you have any experience with efforts to try to m- measure that or quantify those specific things using satellite data mm, that's a good question um i mean i think a lot of the things that we have sort of you know, worked at or worked at sort of defining as indicators have have ties or linkages back to right. sort of defined ecosystem services. Right. Um, you know that that's not sort of a, a of a lens that I've applied directly in a lot of my research. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I I think certainly to the extent that satellite imagery gives us an opportunity to define new indicators that we haven't really looked at in the past. Um, mm-hmm. that certainly opens up sort of that, that possibility, right. Of informing, uh, ecosystem goods and services. And, um, just a, uh, somewhat related example from, from the work we were doing last week, you know, there's, uh, at the Rock Creek ranch in Southern Idaho, there's, uh, um, some interest in doing some, some stream restoration, uh, work down there. And uh, we've been having just some open discussions about like, okay, well, what are the indicators? What would we actually measure to sort of track the the success of these treatments and then their effect on the on these sort of watersheds, right? And and you know, one of the things that was sort of brought up is that well, the, the actual extent and and change in shape and size of these stream riparian areas, right, or these or these sort of wetland mm-hmm. areas would potentially be a really useful indicator. And mm-hmm. it's like, well, that's something that you can do really easily from imagery that, mm-hmm. that you know, is, is actually kind of a pain to do that in the field, right? And so mm-hmm. so I think that that the image products, the remote sensing products do give us an opportunity to, to, to sort of measure things that we haven't done well mm-hmm. before, right? Yeah, that's a, that makes me think I have measured – sinuosity over time using Google Earth imagery. Yeah. It just to, it, it doesn't take any time at all to roll back the imagery, at least the ones that you've got enough resolution you could actually see the stream channel mm-hmm. um, and get pretty close to what the, the Thalweg would be. And I, th- there's something else sort of that's really interesting in that too and that I, I think our, our tendency is to jump to really sort of like sophisticated analyses, complicated sort of approaches to do mm-hmm. things. But there's a lot of value that can come out of these remote sensing products just by, you know, that's almost like the, the low tech, high tech approaches, right. You know, yeah, you have the imagery that's available and you can actually go in and digitize the, you know, the the stream channel over time Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, sort of quantify how that's changed or moved. Right. Mm -hmm. So we we don't, while it's a lagging indicator, it's one that is indicative of a whole lot of things that are playing into that, to make that happen. Yeah. Yeah. In one sense, it's a lagging indicator, but it's also a persistent indicator, right? You mm-hmm. know, so like, like, uh, you know, a- annual grass cover is a lagging indicator too, right? But it's really flashy and changes from year to year right. and changes in sinuosity of a stream. Now, granted, you could have some sort of really, you know, like, like significant episodic flooding event that right. changes it Resets like overnight, it. right? But, but, 
you know, it, yeah, in, in some cases, just because something is lagging doesn't necessarily mean that it's not useful. It's not useful, right? Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier that there are unknown unknowns that that we may begin to learn about through access to data that we haven't had before, you know, either at larger spatial scales or at temporal scales where we have uh, a frequency of data that we haven't had before, particularly with with ground-based monitoring. Uh, The unknown unknown, I think, is a quote from Donald Rumsfeld when he said, there are... There are things that we know we don't know, and things that we don't know we don't know, and the things that we don't know we don't know may be the ones that are important or that we should be worried about. Uh, or uh, it seems like remote sense, remotely sensed data could be one of the good ways to get at some of these unknown unknowns that could be important. Yeah, yeah, and that's I, I love that quote, and and Donald Rumsfeld was just skewered for that um, uh, for, for saying that, and I find it really interesting that that. That quote didn't originate with him. It mm-hmm. actually came from a from a NASA administrator who was talking about space exploration and mm-hmm. and uh, um, but but it but it is sort of a useful sort of like like way to think about like how we go about business and in, in monitoring right and and you know we're setting up these systems to deal with our known unknowns you know the, the right. I, I need to know like what my you know sort of my forage availability is and track that over time. Right. Mm-hmm. But, but, but yeah, there are these things, you know, we, we know, I mean, experience has shown us that, that there are all these unanticipated things that we're going to need to have data for and, and sometimes have mm-hmm. it really fast. Right. And so, so yeah, I, th- I think that the, that, that remote sensing certainly gives us a, a, a platform for doing that, you know, cause it's just this, this sort of, continuously operating collection of observations, you know, and, and, and there's a phrase we use sort of like, like, um, uh, in, in range and not necessarily a range monitoring, not necessarily a, a, a friendly context, right? We call it answers in search of questions. Right. And, mm-hmm. and I think we generally would say that, that monitoring, just for the sake of monitoring is a bad idea, right? We need to have, uh, you know, we need to have goals and objectives in mind for why we're doing it. But, but there is a lot of value in having some of these answers in search of questions, right? That, that give us this kind of just base data from which we can, you know, sort of start, right? And, and remote sensing is a great, a great, uh, source of those data. And, and I would say too, that the, um, you know, these, these sort of consistent, you know, sort of cross ownership monitoring programs that come from the, like the core indicators and methods is, is, is another example of that. You know, a lot of those efforts are designed around answering specific questions, but it's a, you know, it, 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 it's, it's all apples to apples data. And so we can repurpose it. We can, you know, to, to the extent possible, you know, um, to, mm-hmm. to be one of those sort of base data sets for us. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier that, um, Things like satellite data, you know, large quantities of satellite data, don't tell a story without some interpretation based on assumptions. You know, going back to the value of monitoring, some people have said that uh, monitoring is sort of like uh, the dipstick in your car. You know, where we want to know: do we have enough oil that the engine is not going to burn up and leave us on the side of the road? But of course, that assumes that we know how much oil is important. That our dipstick is actually accurately measuring how much oil is there uh, what are the what are the dangers in 
in satellite data, in big data, where uh, where that connection maybe isn't all that transparent or clear. Yeah, I I think that this sort of ties back to this idea of like land potential, right? And 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 that's the the sort of equivalent of you like knowing how much oil is supposed to be in your car, right? right. Um, and and if if you don't know what the what the potential of the land is, and and you don't know like how the the different sort of parts of that system are supposed to function, then you can you can come to sort of like like the wrong conclusion based mm -hmm. on the data, right? And and so, mm -hmm. you know, you could look at like a, a an increase in greenness, right, uh, over a, a landscape and say that that's a good thing, right? But that increase in greenness, which, you know, that's all the satellites measuring, right? It's just, there's more mm -hmm. photosynthetic activity here. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, we might think that's good, but that may be as a result of the, you know, we just have like annual grass invasion right. and yeah, we've got a lot more photosynthetic activity, but it's like totally not the thing that we want. Right. right. Um, and, and so you, you need to know, yeah, what the land's capable of doing, what the potential of that land is, and then like what you should be expecting in order to interpret what mm -hmm. those values mean. Right. Cause, cause just on, on their own, those, they're not really much more useful than gee whiz values, right? Right. Yeah. If I'm in a six-inch precip zone, I shouldn't expect 25% basal cover. Right, yeah. If I get 8%, that should be considered. Yeah, yeah. And so, right, there's this sweet spot, this range of <clears throat> values that you would expect to see if you go below that or if you go above that, then that's suggested that something's not right, right? But 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 we need to know and, and, and maybe this is sort of an area of, of, of research, right? Um, of like we need to know what those expectations are for these different indicators and these different types of land. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, interestingly, I think that a lot of these data that we're collecting through programs like AIM or through the NRI or even uh, efforts like, you know, the RAP, right? These remote sensing products help us to build these profiles of different systems. And so we can, we can sort of start to get that window into how they're responding under different situations. Mm -hmm. What's your take home message for ranchers? Are there, are there some you know, rancher ready tools that we should promote? Uh, we, we've mentioned a couple that may or may not be you know, totally ready for prime time, like the wrap, uh, but any, anything else that you feel like people uh, should pay attention to and think about using? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, there's, there's plenty of tools to wrap. There's like land PKS, um, which I think you've, you know, sort of yeah, talked Jeff to Jeff before on that one. You know, that's a, that's a great sort of easy way for people to be collecting, you know, some data and observations. I guess my, my sort of take home would be that, um, you know, you really don't think about it in terms of methods. Think about it in terms of indicators. What what is it that you're trying to to measure? You're trying to track over time, and then you know look for the ways to 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 do that that are most consistent with sort of what like the larger community of people are doing, right? Mm -hmm. And and there's the, the values in that are going to be that yeah, your data are more sort of useful and informative because there's a larger context in, in which to interpret the data. But, mm -hmm. but the, the additional value is that there are also like more resources to support you using that, that approach, right? Um, so, so I think that that would be sort of my largest take home, right, is to fo focus on the indicators and then, you know, let, let the best technology of the day sort of inform us on 
how we actually measure those indicators, be it a, you know, a, a field technique or a remote sensing technique, right? right? Uh, and I think we're going to see more and more the, the I was going to say the line blur between those two, right? But I think we're going to see these sort of hybridized systems, you know, right. evolve, right? And, right? and you can argue that something like the RAP is already a hybridized system because it's using a lot of those field data to create that product. But I think we're going to start seeing more and more systems where you can actually like drop your field observations in mm-hmm. and then it provides you that that interpretation of it. And that that's really sort of what like what land PKS is is heading is aiming toward. for, right? And heading yeah. towards. Yeah. Jason, thank you for your time. Tip, this has been great. Thanks. And we'll put some information and some links in the show notes uh, for some of the resources that we've mentioned, websites and publications. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. Thank you.